It's not about money. It's not about anything else. You forget the tiredness and the sleepless nights of the flights and the rides and everything. You forget everything. You're just in the moment. You're pure ecstasy mode. And that's purely based on the fact that you're able to be a small part of helping somebody else. And that for me was the changing moment where I realized that it's, it's, it was never about the money. It's actually more about the impact. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast. I'm Matt Callanan. I'm a former, former international DJ and music producer, turned podcaster, filmmaker, and founder of the Kindness Project. Project. We make good happen. like your life transformed with new opportunities would you like the same status as a book author would you like increased sales for you and your business i've achieved I've all achieved. of this by doing this exact podcast now i'm training people exactly like you in a super easy style how to launch a successful podcast just go to podcast like a pro.co.uk that's podcast like a pro.co.uk Thank you. So here we are, live in Dublin with amazing human Amir Darwood. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Great to be here. Yeah. So you're the founder of the Good Summit and multiple other things. Yeah. What do you What do you have on your business card? It must be massive. Uh, to be honest, not necessarily. It's just like everything. Every single entity runs really smooth and it's all about building an incredible group of amazing people that make you look a lot better than you should. <laughs> kind of the team's ten times better than me in every single way. So they're doing an incredible job to kind of make things sustainable and um, expanding it really well as well. Your main business is now in Egypt, do you wanna So yeah, so I kind of I started off working on a couple of random things initially. So I studied medicine, engineering, maths, business, and I did a small degree in law. So I went off, I stayed in university for about 13 years and it was, it started off by failure to be honest more than anything else. So I kind of skipped a couple of years when I was in school and I was a failure at chemistry to be honest. Like I, I, I think I got the lowest score in, in, in leaving cert history in chemistry back in the day, which I'm very <laughs> proud of to this point, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And both my parents were surgeons. So I kind of went down the whole medicine route even though they both didn't want me to. So they were both actually against me doing medicine because, you know, chemistry and all. And so I was like, I just went in just to annoy them. I really didn't find myself in medicine. After a couple of years in medicine, I realized that I loved the invention side of medicine more than anything else. So I started inventing small medical devices. Okay. I realized that you can actually impact so many people just by creating a small device rather than actually being a doctor. 
I asked my dad, like, how many people can you actually impact on a on a hands-on ground level throughout your medical career? And like, is it like a thousand, ten thousand? It'll never be more than ten thousand. It's it's very difficult. You can't operate on ten, more than ten thousand people. It's it's actually ridiculously difficult if if you think about it. So um, he was like, yeah, it's approximately in that number. So I was like, yep, yeah, it's not enough. Why was impact so important to you at that point then? It never was till I turned around 15. Before that, money, I was I was driven by money more than anything else. So when I was young, I was kind of a, an odd child out. Like when I was in school, it was annoying. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was kind of that kid that always stays, uh, annoys everyone, very hyperactive, kind of um, shorter than everybody else because I was younger than everybody else by at least three years back in school day. And obviously when you're eight or nine or 10, those three years matter, like especially in size. And I grew up really late. So I was always like the odd one out. So it kind of, I think it affected me um, psychologically. And um, I think I had that Napoleon syndrome, 100%. So I wanted to overcompensate uh, in whatever way, shape, form I can. And that was through maths and physics. So I used to annoy everyone in class on maths and physics. And that was my kind of thing out. So all the teachers assumed that I'm going to be the next billionaire coming out. And that affected me mentally. Because it wasn't just the teachers after a point. It actually was um, like most of my friends' families automatically assumed that as well. So they were always like, oh, why don't you kind of be like Amr and like, you know, good at maths and physics, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and that went straight to my head. So that was like, for me, success was money. Was that helpful though, having that, all of those people saying those sort of things? No, it wasn't. Because at the time, it was just, it filled my head with false reality that success is just money driven. And because that's what everyone around me expected me to do. Whereas in reality, right now it isn't. And the reason why it shifted was because of my dad. So my dad, my dad's a surgeon, as I mentioned, and he's, uh, he's amazing. So he's, a, he's an orthopedic surgeon. So he does surgery on bones and all that kind of stuff, all these great stuff. And he used to travel down. So I'm originally Egyptian. So he used to travel down to Egypt to see his, his mom and also do a couple of surgeries for free, like pro bono, on, for people from disadvantaged groups. So he used to fly down around every couple of months for a week or two. So he told me, like, come down with me the next time around because he's seen what I can become if he doesn't intervene. Like, he was afraid of the impact that everyone around me is talking about money, is talking about, you know, doing, uh, running for money rather than running for value. And he was afraid that at that point in time, if he doesn't intervene or anyone doesn't intervene, that, that will actually be my goal, that I won't think of impact at all. And I'm going to like lose it. So he kind of, yeah, he reached out. And so we went down to Egypt that day and it was really cool because I used to, I used to only fly down to Egypt about three, three to four weeks a year max when I was a child. And usually it's in summer. And then I stopped going when I was um, in college because I just had like, uh, I used to work in summer and all that kind of stuff. So I remember that time we, we flew down and I saw a girl, like we flew down to this local town and I saw a girl who was almost my age who couldn't walk because of a simple procedure her parents couldn't afford. Mm. And at that time, it was it was really striking for me. I was like coming from from Ireland, like having real first world problems, <laughs> never experienced a third world problem issue. Coming from a very privileged background, kind of so I, I saw I saw the look on her face, and then I saw the look on her parents' face. Her parents it was really striking because her parents were looking down as if they kind of failed her as parents because they couldn't they couldn't provide her a simple procedure because they couldn't afford it. But then the girl was amazing because the girl kept on, the girl was like the more grown up uh, in the relationship. The girl was uh, very supportive of her parents. Uh, like she kept telling them, don't worry, 
I'm grand. Like it's gonna be, it's gonna be fine. Like uh, I didn't actually. Like she was actually telling them, I didn't lose much by not walking. Like well, the last couple of years, it's fine. I kind of gained a lot of other things, which was amazing. So I, I saw like how how incredible um, she was, and then I saw the look on my dad's face when he was able to be a small part of kind of helping her. That was everything. So I've never seen my dad that happy before. It was kind of pure happiness at its uh, at its most level. Like it's uh, it's not about money it's not about anything else you forget the tiredness uh, and the and the sleepless nights of the flights and the rides and everything you forget everything you're just in the moment you're pure ecstasy mode and that's purely based on the fact that you're able to be a small part of helping somebody else and that for me was the changing moment where i realized that it's, it's it was never about the money it's actually more about the impact more than anything else so did your dad perform the operation then for this yeah this girl? yeah and what was the parents' reaction to it? They were obviously really happy. Like they were, they were very happy. It, w- it was crazy. They started crying, of course, and all that kind of stuff. But their reaction was very kind of calculated. Like I, I could have predicted that before. But my dad's reaction was something that I've never experienced because I've never, I, like, I never went down with him on one of those trips. So for me, I always saw my dad as the surgeon who kind of does surgeries, but he does it without emotions in a way because the best thing to do as a, as a surgeon is to remove emotions away from surgery. Uh, that's why you're actually not allowed to kind of um, do surgery on your old siblings or or family members because once you put emotions into it, you, you might you might uh, kind of affect the surgery itself. So it's more of a procedure than anything else. Uh, that's the way I saw my dad beforehand. So it was very different for me to, to see my dad emotionally on that aspect than like the ecstasy that he was able to be in just because of that like simple procedure. It was absolutely amazing, and I kind of um, and he keeps on doing that like it. Two weeks ago, he called me up. He was only he flew down to Egypt for twenty hours, and he went down to the town, did a surgery, and came back. And it was six, like four, three hours away. So he just went three hours, did surgery, and come came back just Mm. because he promised him he was going to do that. So it was. uh, It's really nice. So that's what made me shift my mindset toward impact. Do you know why your dad did that? Then have you asked him why he does that? I think I I spoke to him a couple times. Like for me, he always he always like goes back to kind of the whole aspect of the values that you live by. So for him, it's never about money. It's more about values, living life with values. He believes in that everyone is born to do something. Like you're born for a meaning, you're born for a purpose. Uh, once you find that purpose, you have actually you're obliged to kind of live by those rules that you define within yourself. So for him, those values were very kind of, his life was value driven from day one. Like he knew he he went into medicine to try and make the world slightly better. And if he just lived like doing private surgeries, then he's actually living against the values that he went into medicine for. So he wanted to kind of make sure he has that balance within himself to kind of live a happy, sustainable life. So it was at that moment then that you've seen your dad yeah. perform on that girl. Yeah. So was it the your dad's reaction that yeah. made the switch rather than seeing the difference it made to the girl 100 percent. because the thing is like for me as soon as i saw my dad's reaction like it was absolutely amazing i saw the happiness on his face and then it made me realize that for like i never chose to be in the situation that i was in like i never chose to be slightly good at maths or physics but a failure at chemistry and <laughs> among other things the same exact way like the girl never chose to be in that situation herself like she she would never chose to be in, in a family that couldn't afford uh, the surgery or be born with this specific thing. So how can I say I'm better than anybody else just because of something that I, I never worked hard to do? 
So that for me was a turning point that made me realize that, you know, whatever I have little of is meant to be used for something a lot more valuable than just money. Yeah, you realized that, okay, you've got some skills and you mm. come back to that. How could I make an impact mm. by developing kind of medical mm. tools? And mm. what happened then? I started working on a couple of things, mostly went nowhere, but I, I really liked the concept of kind of working on them. And it made me realize, you know what, you can reach a um, huge amount of people by just a small medical device, which was amazing. So for me, like that was the dream. So I was like, oh, what's the best thing that I can do based on this? Like, how can I actually increase impact and kind of create a better change? And for me, the easiest way to do so was to actually switch back from medicine and become an engineer with a little medical knowledge that I can actually build amazing medical equipment as an engineer with a background in medicine. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be like the rock star of medical devices because uh, I'm going to have like the engineering aspect and also the medical aspect, merging them both together. Yeah. Uh, I'll know exactly what's needed and I'll know how to make that happen. So that's why I decided to switch five years after medicine. And my dad was actually the most supportive person. He was very happy for the switch <laughs> and he really liked it. So I went into engineering in Trinity, went back to Trinity to engineering. It was amazing for me. Actually, Trinity was very transformative um, in my social entrepreneurship kind of scene. Because beforehand, in medicine, unfortunately, you're, you live in a bubble. So uh, medical students everywhere kind of know this. You kind of live, you're secluded away from college mainly because you're mostly in hospitals, you're mostly whatever. So you never really know about entrepreneurship. And you never really know about what's happening in college because you're mostly in, in your own zone, which is really annoying uh, <laughs> at times. I, I actually didn't know I was in a zone until I left because <laughs> it's it was crazy. So when I came down to Trinity, I started kind of going down to all these groups and real, realizing that there's actually a lot more to life and there's uh, you know a lot of activities uh, a lot, there's something called entrepreneurship and uh, there's something called social entrepreneurship. I joined a couple of societies and um, yeah, it went out really well. We started the social enterprise when I was in my second year in college over here and it was called Change for Change. It was around the time that, so there was a guy called Jonathan Corey, I think that was his name, down in December. He passed away in front of the doll over here because it was really cold. He was homeless. And he he passed away just from sheer cold, sheer cold weather at the time, and it was really striking for me at the time because like uh, just the whole aspect of again living in a developed country, we shouldn't have third world issues. Um, so I was like, well, what is the issue? What is the underlying root cause of why people are actually homeless? So I started walking around to different homeless charities, and I realized that everyone's tackling the top level, whether it's food and shelter but no one's trying to tackle the underlying issue of why actually people are homeless and trying to kind of rechange that. I thought of what if we can do a program, like a six-month program, like a, more of like an entrepreneurship incubator, but to get down those who've been affected by homelessness, put down in a program, kind of teach them real-life skills and then guarantee them a job if they pass this program, kind of pass through. So yeah, it was like, uh, it was a dream. It was like, uh, we started with a couple of amazing students. Uh, we started together down here from in Trinity. And we raised about 40,000 euros in a couple of weeks, which from like a couple of corporates, uh, so it went really well. And the hardest thing was actually to find the right candidates for the program, because we wanted people who haven't been affected by addiction, because then we know we don't have the capabilities to deal with that at the moment as well. So it went out really well. Like after, after a year, there was a girl, an incredible, incredible girl who was affected by homelessness. And then we managed to kind of make her pass through the program. And right now she's fully employed. And then the year after, a guy came down through as well. 
Amazing. Uh, yeah, which actually, which was really cool. And I think that moment where the girl kind of, I met the girl. I think that's another moment in my life that I kind of still remember. The day she was able to get a job because um, we were able to be a small part of kind of making that happen. Um, she was amazing. Like I, I think that moment made me realize even more. Maybe it made it more, more secure in my head that life is about meaning. It's not about money. Because I saw the look on her face. I saw the joy. And then I felt the happiness that I had just from being a small part of making that happen as well. So yeah, that's yeah, it went really well. But yeah, it's like, then we worked on a couple of other programs. A friend of mine called Max Doyle had this idea about uniting all of Ireland in one day for one cause. Kind of, He's like, oh, why don't we get everyone in Ireland to donate one euro in one day for one cause? And I was like, yeah, it's really cool. I was like, let's make that happen. So he called me up and he's like, uh, I'm starting this. I'm calling it One for Ireland. Uh, he's like, let's let's do it. Uh, let's make this. So we, uh, he got a couple of people and then I joined them. And we worked on it. It went really well. In our first year, uh, we raised about 250,000 euros from in, in a space of about 20 hours. Wow. So it went really well. And then we sponsored um, about ten, nine homeless charities at the time, tackling directly tackling youth homelessness in Ireland. And then the year after then, it went even bigger. So we signed more, more stores to take part. Um, so we raised almost uh, the same amount. So it went really well. We kept on just growing it. And it went, it, it grew organically. And, and that's that's that that was the main thing for me. I just wanted to be focused on things that actually make meaning more than anything else. How did you get the traction on that particular project? How was it successful? Max was really interesting. So Max uh, took a year off college just to focus on this as well. And so he studied law in Trinity and then he, he met me. He got in touch based on the project that I've done before, Change for Change. So he was like, yeah, we need to connect. So we wanted, he had this idea of uniting all of Ireland, but we didn't know how to unite everyone in one day for one cause. At the beginning, we had this idea of sending postcards to people at home and asking them to put in a euro. But then we're like, this is going to be a huge hassle done collecting the money. He came up with this idea randomly sitting down in a coffee shop. And we said like, why don't we add on, why don't we sign in shops and ask them to ask their customers on the day if they want to increase their bill by euro. So that was basically it. So the hardest thing was actually getting shops on board. And once that happened, then on that day, in one day, that's it, just one day a year, uh, they asked their customers if they want to increase their bill by one euro. And we made barcodes where they scan, increments the bill by a euro. And at the end of the month, they can just scan the barcode and see how many times the barcode got scanned and then send us the amount. So that was, it's, it's a very, very simple process. And the coolest thing about it is we, we made sure that 100% of the money goes down to the cause. So there were no overheads at all. So we covered our overheads by CSR. So we had uh, the Irish Youth Foundation kind of helping us out big time when it comes to office space and employees and all that kind of stuff. We had a couple of entities in Ireland kind of helping us as well. So we had zero overheads when it comes to the money coming in. So 100% of the money that came in came out and we were very transparent about it from day one. So we wanted to be the first uh, charity that was 100% transparent where 100% of the money goes down to the cause. That's amazing. Is it still going then? Yeah, so we, we just uh, took a break this year. This was our uh, 2016, 2017, 2018. So we did three years, took a break this year, and then we might do something bigger next year then. Amazing. Were you doing this while you were still at university then? Yeah. So that was in my final year of uni. We started, So yeah, he came up with the idea of final year of uni. So we worked on it. In final, our first campaign was April 2016 when I was in my final year of uni. Nice. Was that yeah. part of the final year project then or something? No. Just completely separate? <laughs> Just completely separate. Amazing. Yeah. But it worked out really well. And then uh, that was the same year as well. We, were, we met Jules. 
It was during the the vigil held just right there in Front Square in Trinity for people, what you call it, attacks in Paris at the time. So the attacks in Paris were kind of an odd one as well because um, it was kind of really interesting for me to to be part of it because attacks in Paris were like, it was, I think it was a nightclub at the time and a guy went in and he bombed himself in a nightclub. He killed a couple of people and a lot of the media had some Islamophobia backlash against against all that like they were saying like they were accusing kind of muslims and islam to be aggressive and that's the reason why the guy kind of um, killed himself and he killed a lot of people which was which was really interesting so trinity here held the vigil and they asked me to speak on behalf of the muslim kind of groups in dublin and trinity and they asked jules to speak on behalf of like the christian methodist um, and that's when we met so we held the vigil was which actually really interesting so it was, it was uh, the coolest thing was like the whole aspect of uniting regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or anything else, and people just actually uniting for good, for a common good, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, the power of the vigil itself was really cool because everyone was there, different races, different genders, different ages, different religions, just uniting there for a common purpose, for like you know, for people who lost their lives because of a, mm. a vicious attack against humanity, regardless of what happened and what led to that happening. Uh, and that was very powerful. That, that that was the reason why we wanted to create the Good Summit. Do you want to tell the listener then mm. what the Good Summit is all about? Yeah, the Good Summit is actually really interesting. So after that, we sat down and we wanted to create a summit around showcasing how everyone in society can be part of societal change. So that's basically it. Usually whenever I give talks anywhere and tell them my story, I get two reactions. And even if they're not said, but I can just sense it. Either people get really motivated or people get really demotivated because <laughs> it's uh, especially because some people get demotivated because they feel like I'll never reach that. Uh, it might be because I started things when I'm really young and they might be older. They might see my fake sense of success because of whatever I said. I, I like people on, only see the successful part of whatever they said. They don't mention their failures. So obviously, if you're telling your story to somebody else, they automatically assume that you're more successful than you, you actually are, uh, which is ironic. Uh, so it gets really annoying. And obviously, whenever whenever I used to tell the story to people, especially in panels on societal change, a lot of times people assume that you need to start your own company or to start your own charity to actually make to be part of change and to create change. And that's something that I was totally against. That's something I wanted to change. And so I was like, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be an accountant, you can be a carpenter, you can you can be you can do whatever you want in life and and make somebody's life better, regardless. And that was the whole ethos of the Good Summit, showcasing how literally everyone, uh, regardless of what he does uh, or what she does, can be part of societal change um, and make somebody's life better just by being themselves and just doing something smaller and changing something smaller in them and creating lasting change. So how do you get those demotivated people engaged then? Uh, I, I tell them about my failures. So I love talking about failure because for me, like I, I only learned through failure and um, I'm very open about it. Uh, like I, I failed so many times and that's like the only reason why uh, like I might have succeeded in a couple of things is because I failed in so many others. And like uh, the startups that I've started, like the ones that uh, I will mention are very small, like the amount compared to like the, th- the hundreds, not hundreds, like, like the tens that I, that I failed at over the last couple of years. And that's fine. 
and that's actually healthy like the, the whole aspect of starting something and then working on it is is very it's a very vulnerable experience it's sometimes i'm sure like you know this yourself as well like when you start something it becomes like your baby it's more of a relationship more than anything else and after a while like the whole vulnerability aspect of you and your company you become one it's like meshed together you don't know if uh, you're matt the person or, or matt the podcast uh, but it's it's great but the whole aspect of being vulnerable being open uh, if something goes bad to talk about it if something goes well to also kind of take your moment and kind of gratitude yourself th- that's key so i wanted to showcase that failure is not bad and remove the negative stigma associated with failure because a lot especially right now young people put a lot of pressure on themselves to kind of showcase success uh, due to the increased competitiveness nature that we live in young people like everyone like graduates right now compete for everything like they're competing to get in the best companies because that's going to promote their careers a lot better and that's going to stabilize their life blah 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 but like the thing is like it's it puts a lot of pressure on those who didn't so a person who didn't get into like the big four, a person who didn't get into like the company that he wanted will feel that he failed automatically, even though he's a success by every other mean. But it's just, we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves without knowing. And this it's really annoying. And so just taking a step back and looking at the overall picture, realizing that even if you actually failed and I can show them examples of failure so many times, it's fine. And actually things work out in a, in a way, as long as you're working, you're working on your own path results don't matter what's the biggest failure then that you learned the most from Ooh, i failed a lot i think i think when i was in uh, i failed so many times like starting starting companies like i like my biggest learning that i've learned from like a couple of different failures is the aspect of starting companies with people who are different than you so like i used to start companies with people who are exactly similar to me and that that led to failure. Like it converted to failure a lot more than anything else. Uh, I found people who exactly thought like me, uh, who liked the same things, who didn't complement. We didn't complement each other's skill set. So it was basically like your mirror in a way. Mm. So nothing happened. Nothing happened because like the things that you're gonna do, they're gonna do anyway. But like the things that need to be done, nobody's gonna do. And so that 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 really didn't work, and that that was the annoying aspect. So I, that that's my biggest thing. So it's like focusing on team building, focusing on building the right team. Um, that's my biggest lesson that I've learned across most of the failures um, that I've, that have that happened to me at least. Because you're running a company out in Egypt, and you've got about hundred employees, is that right? Yeah. So the the company Egypt's actually really cool. So what happened is um, I went down to Egypt about so a year and three four months ago just to see my grandma and just to chill for a conference um, and i was i was being asked to be a mentor and a judge at a hackathon it was actually the world's largest hackathon it was like in the guinness records at the time and we got the guinness world record so while i was there i kind of met so many people from the area and like i've never actually been to the egyptian ecosystem before because i'm like i'm raised in ireland so i've never really been in touch with that aspect before and I was invited there as an Irish person, kind of coming down, an expert in entrepreneurship, if you will. Even though I, I know nothing, but it was <laughs> it was it was it was great. But it was really cool. So when I went there, I got to meet so many people, and I met one guy called Walid. And Walid's really cool. He started a startup in Egypt, and he he asked like three days later, we 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 just ended up bonding and talking about everything to do with startups and companies and everything else. And uh, he came up with the idea uh, of this company, and he asked me to join. So then I was like, all right, let's do it. So three days later, I joined. So <laughs> I, I never left. 
And yeah, so we, we worked on building it. So right now we have um, almost 90, 90 full-time staff, 65% of whom are mostly women from disadvantaged communities. And uh, what we started was like an application to deliver fresh produce from farm to fridge. So we cut, cut out the middleman for supply chain of fresh produce, whether it's fruit and vegetables. And we get we source our everything from directly from farms that don't use pesticides and all that kind of stuff. And we deliver it straight to the consumer. So we have warehouses where we pack the items, where we transport, where we store. So yeah, between everything, we have almost 90 employees and 65% um, of the amazing people working there with us are women from disadvantaged communities as well. Was that a particular choice then? Yeah, hundred percent. So we want to. So that our dream, like we sat down, like we have a vision to try and create ten thousand jobs for people from disadvantaged communities in the next ten years. So that's our thing because, like, the hardest thing when you're starting a startup is to have a clear, defined vision. And our vision, besides obviously being profitable and the company to grow and all that kind of stuff, because it is a startup, is to obviously give back to the community that kind of helped us grow. And that's that's something we're very kind of passionate about to help create better jobs and to help actually create jobs to those normally uh, not seen. Sounds like an amazing, <laughs> you're already doing amazing things, which yeah. is brilliant. So how, how long was that after you graduated then from uni? So I graduated from Trinity, I graduated in 2016. Yeah. Uh, after I graduated, I joined the Washington Ireland program. So I was one of the lucky 30 people chosen from Ireland to kind of go down to the U.S., so I worked in lobbying for a bit. So I, I lobbied for video games, which was amazing in Washington, D.C. I stayed there for a couple of months and then I came back. And that all that kind of took place from then. I worked at the European Parliament in Brussels as an AI advisor, which was really cool. So I advised on artificial intelligence, medical devices a couple of times as well. We wrote a couple of papers, which was really cool. It's actually a really interesting job. And then, yeah, things kept on moving from then. So that's So basically most of the entrepreneurship or startups or investing all happened within after between 2014 and now sounds like big leaps that you're sort of stepping up yeah so what's next then where do you want to end up or what do you want your legacy to be (laughs) so right now we're just working on a couple of different things so it's really cool so like besides this i'm obviously want to be sustainable on my own self so we're working we i keep on working on ai startups so one of the AI startups we're working on, I'm, I'm currently in talks for it to be acquired at the moment. So I'm just trying to finalize kind of the acquisition, all that kind of stuff. And then also working in investing. So a friend, another friend of ours kind of started an investment firm and he asked, he asked me to join as well. So I kind of joined the investment firm. So we're raising a new fund. And it's really cool because before that, I thought investors were this were really annoying people um, who kind of, because I was always on the other side of the table kind of asking for investment. So I always assumed that, you know, they're greedy people always like wanting the next uh, big thing and they want to squeeze you for whatever you got. But then I realized that there's actually a science to it and it's actually really cool, especially when you invest really early stage. So when you invest really early stage, you're actually impacting entrepreneurs and giving them a fighting chance. And you're believing in them when nobody else does. And that's actually a key. It's very high risk. It's it's higher risk than investing in Uber at the moment or a company that already is a unicorn. When you're investing in a company that's already that's not, that has no investors and valued at 200K uh, that can close down in the next 10 minutes, uh, you're literally putting it all on the line and you want to help them be sustainable and you want to help them grow. 
so that was it so uh, it was really cool it was really interesting kind of focusing on that and we been working on that for for about like a, uh, nine months now in the investment um, field we invested in a couple of really amazing companies and right now we're building a fund one of which i'm kind of uh, taking over from like a fundraising aspect and kind of that's why like i had to kind of i, I jumped in knees deep uh, in the investment thing which is really cool so like even like looking after ngos and seeing and speaking to a couple of different ngos at the moment seeing how we can make them sustainable by creating an investment fund for them where uh, the returns of the fund can actually go go down to them uh, and they can sustain themselves with the returns as well and then investors are also happy but then they also get returns which is great so i think there there's huge potential at the moment when it comes to investment especially when you invest early stage and not just that but also in developing countries as well because you're not just uh, giving uh, like a dollar in Ireland is worth a dollar, but a dollar in Africa can be worth a hundred dollars to a person from there. Um, and also they can do so much more with the dollar than anybody else. So I think like uh, traveling down and being multidisciplinary and, and kind of investing across countries and cross borders is the key for the future rather than focusing on one specific aspect and one specific region or one specific tangent, being totally technology agnostic, totally regional, region agnostic, focusing on f- funding and uh, uh, what you call it, like investing in entrepreneurs rather than ideas and investing in humans. That's the key. And that's what I've actually learned. So right now I, I, we privilege ourselves by being founders friendly and investing in people rather than investing in ideas. So that's, that's my goal, to continue investing in humans, in, in amazing humans. What's the difference then in, in between investing in ideas rather, well, what's the difference between investing in ideas and humans and why are you focusing on humans? For me, ideas are open source. Implementation is everything. So five or six people can have the same idea, but one will kind of boom. One can fail and then the three others can kind of just be middle ground, not failing, not booming. I call them zombies, like they're in, in the middle line. The reason being, they're the same exact same idea, the reason being implementation. So implementation is is down to the founders, down to their ethos, down to how they work, down to their backgrounds, how they're aligned, how their vision is aligned, their strategies, all that kind of stuff. So once you believe in founders, ideas might be like, it's not the priority at the moment. The priority is like the backgrounds of the founders themselves, how it's aligned with the idea, not the other way around. Because ideas can die. Uh, and if the ideas die and the founders aren't fit enough, uh, then the whole company collapses. But if if the idea dies, but the founders are great, they can actually transform the idea to something else, which happens like YouTube, for example, when it started, it started off, it started off as a dating service. Really? Yeah, it was, a, it was a dating service. But right now it's not, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so that was the, the idea initially. It was like for dating. Uh, that's what like, the story says anyway, uh, which is really cool. Amazon is the largest, was the largest, what you call the book retailer. Right now it's everything, other uh, books as well, but everything else. So that's down to like the vision and down to a couple of different things. So once you believe in humans, they can do incredible things. If you believe in idea, an idea can die. And that's like, that's what I believe in. So that's why like, I love investing in humans, especially in, in amazing entrepreneurs that have ridiculous high achieving dreams. And they just need that little bit of boost uh, to kind of get them to, towards the next level. And that boost can, it, it's not just about money. At times, actually, most of the time, your help is more about is time rather than money. So what I like doing is I like speaking to a couple of amazing entrepreneurs that we have and kind of helping them out across the road 
kind of whenever they have an issue, whenever they have uh, a problem, my door is always open. I love to speak to them. I love to kind of uh, give them advice, regardless of if we're investors in them or not. Um, and that's something that I believe it's it's part of my values that I want to kind of pass pass on. If there's a- anything that I didn't fail at, I don't want anybody else to fail in as well. Might as well just tell them, you know what, I've been to that road and I failed. So try a different thing rather than kind of following my footsteps and failing in that as well. So what do you want your legacy to be then? Ooh, it's a tough question. Like for, I don't know, like I just want to help try impact as many people as possible. For me, like I, I want to continue like to be value driven. So that's it. Like it's about, it's it's a more internal kind of hope than anything else. I really don't like, I'm happy. I don't want to leave something behind that people speak about. For me, it's it's more about how I see myself more than how people see me. I'm genuinely very content on that aspect. I'm a very content person. And that's something like I get from my parents as well. So I, I, I don't need a lot, of, a lot of things in life to make me happy. But for me, the main source of happiness is, lies within. So I want to continue to be that person who focuses on value because I would hate after a while to kind of shift my focus to be money-driven because that, that will actually make me unhappy in the long run as well. So I want to continue to be value-driven regardless of what I do and continue to slightly make the world a better place in whatever way, shape, or form that might be, because that might change. Like, as I said, like, I moved a lot in the last couple of years, so the way of kind of impacting changed, but the goal is always has always been kind of creating value, and I don't want that to change within myself. How do you stay value-driven mm-hmm. when there's the temptation of money? It's uh, It's tough. It is really tough. And at times I used to run away from money. So I, I, got, I used to get like a huge amount of job offers back when I finished college, like ridiculous job offers. And I always turned them down, but I turned them down out of fear, not out of anything else. And my dad used to call me an idiot. But like I used to, <laughs> I, I, like I remember one specific job offer I, I turned down and it was because I was afraid of what money can do to me. Um, I was afraid of having all that money. It, it might change me uh, as a person, and if I if I got all that money, I might I might start liking the idea of having that that amount of money, and then it might change the values that I live within myself. So that that was that was key. So the goal was to try to slowly kind of kind of focus on fo- building values initially, because most of the time, whenever I spoke to kind of people who were a lot older than me, they always told me one thing: they're like, "I wish I did more when I was young." Because the like I asked my dad, like my dad, my dad's dream is to stop working totally and kind of work on charities, like just um, charity surgeries for the rest of his life. But he can't because he has a family to sustain all that kind of stuff. So he told me, he's like, I, I wish I've done more when I was younger because he, he has no responsibilities. Same, like I have zero responsibilities. No one's waiting for uh, money from me at, uh, at the beginning of the month. And no one's waiting for me to, to kind of help out in any single way. So for me to kind of do whatever I want, I have total freedom. If I have money, I'm the only one that's going to benefit. If I don't, I'm the only one who's going to face consequences. So it's great at this point in time to kind of take the most amount of risks to try to impact the most amount of people uh, rather than focus on anything else. So I I thought like focusing on money right now wasn't the right thing because I really don't need it um, at this point in time. Obviously, this will change in the next couple of years. Uh, once I start kind of uh, building a family and all that kind of stuff, I'll have to sustain for them. But then uh, I'll also be happy that I've already done a bit of, you know, a, a bit of charity and then also constantly kind of building both at the same time rather than having to totally remove one from my life and focusing on the rest. So what does success mean to you then? Success is a really variable term because it means a different thing for everyone. Uh, I'm sure that's what you asked. <laughs> but like for me, 
it's it's about how for, as i said like it's more value driven for myself so it's about how i can how many people i'm actually able to impact positively and impact for me can can mean anything can mean like a person who I was a small part of kind of employing, for example, like uh, he came and he kind of worked and then he he worked somewhere else, but um, he grew uh, because of the place we, he worked at, like, or it can be an incredible person that we've invested in and then the company goes really big um, and we were able to be a small part of making that happen as well. So like direct impact, that for me is key, just making sure I'm a small part of helping as many people as possible. So that for me is success. Have you got a number in mind then that you want to impact? Ooh, I like the thing is like I used to, but I realized that putting a number on something very holistic as this actually sometimes demeans it. So I used to like when I was at the time I used to be like, oh, I need to impact a million people. But for me, when I started thinking about it like uh, a couple of months ago, actually not too long ago, I realized that if I put a number to something that's very holy to me, it it actually demeans it as well because I'm not like I'm I'm putting values on helping. Uh, so it actually demotes the whole aspect of me helping out people just for the sake of good. So I wanted to kind of remove that out of my system because I just want to be a small part of helping people regardless. It's it's not it's not about a number. It's not about reaching something. It's not about reaching the next level or jumping or reaching the next level of video game. It's literally just about me just being happy, able to be a small part of changing somebody else's life. Sounds like you're doing amazing things already, <laughs> which is great. Really, not really. I'm, I'm surrounded by incredible people like yourselves and everybody else who just motivate me to become a better version of myself. What would you say on the talking about the better version of themselves yeah. to people that might be listening? You know, they may have different careers, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. What could they do to positively impact the world? What would you say to them? To be honest, like, I believe everyone has the power to change the world in in every single way like uh, whether it's just by like if if you're a lawyer you can help out pro bono an ngo like i'm uh, 90% of NGOs have legal issues, like especially like with documentations, all that kind of stuff, and financial issues uh, with regards to like accountancy, all that kind of stuff. So like you can offer your services to NGOs that you believe in, that you believe in their values. And that's something very close to my heart. And that's something that you guys do as well, which is absolutely incredible. And I respect that. Uh, kind of offering services to people who need it is is amazing. And I, and I believe this is something that is much needed and is underused at the moment. And there's a lot, like I've met a lot of amazing people working in corporates that uh, want to give back and a lot of NGOs that need that, but there isn't that link between them. And I think that link is missing because it's very difficult to actually seek out opportunities. Like if you're, if like I can totally understand if a person works in a corporate nine to five, if some if someone doesn't reach, if someone doesn't actively reach out to him, it'll be very difficult for him to reach out because he faces like stress all day, all that kind of stuff. So if somebody, if there was a link, a middleman that's able to kind of get those people interested and kind of link them up with those charities, with those NGOs, with a cause that he's very passionate about, I think that's absolutely amazing because everyone has something to offer regardless of what it is, even if it's not on a professional level, on a, just a human personal level, I think there's a huge amount of opportunity we can do. We can change the world slowly um, bit by bit, but we'll do it sustainably. And, and, I, and I totally believe that. That could be your next project then. Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do it. I know you're doing it already, so you're working on incredible things already. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a few examples of that, only on a kind of small level. Yeah. But yeah, it's almost like matching of skills, isn't it? Exactly. And needs. So yeah. you need, need a kind of global system to kind of do that. So. Exactly. And like the, the thing is, like 
a lot of people assume like if you're working on on a value driven it's the total opposite of success of like that means if you're work, if you're focusing on value that means you're not focusing on monetary returns or you, that means you're you know you you're going to stay broke for the rest of your life and that's a misconception that a lot of times it's i need to tell people because the thing is it's when you're focusing on value it totally doesn't demean the aspect of you working for money as well because you need to sustain yourself uh, but it's just the ethos of why you're doing that that's that that's the core value of why you're living that's what you, what should change a lot of times uh, whenever you speak to people and they ask me what i do and they're like oh are you doing this for pro bono i'm like some stuff i do but i have to kind of have a living as well so you have to have some monetary kind of returns and that's something that there's a misconception at times whenever people assume like uh, charity workers have to work for free or as they have families as well don't they like as in like people who run charities they have they have families and they've taken out of their time to focus on something that they're very passionate about why do we have to kind of uh, make them work uh, on a volunteer basis uh, nobody's going to agree to that like and and then the the whole charity will die and that's all obviously a misconception uh, at times and it's actually a struggle within the charity communities at the moment to kind of identify their their costs and identify how much uh, the executives are getting paid and all that kind of stuff which is, which is an issue so you've run the good summit here in dublin yeah. but you've also done it in Australia and Spain. Yeah, so we've done uh, the Good Summit uh, Australia, the Good Summit Dublin. We've done a smaller good collaboration, two collaboration events. One in Spain, being uh, in sign language, it was really cool. And then we did one in Egypt in collaboration with um, another entity as well. And that was the first summit in the whole Middle East to be 100% waste free. So yeah, it worked out really well. How did the one with totally in sign language how did that work then so it was really cool actually the idea came about from a local ngo in the netherlands she's a friend of mine like the founder is a, re- a really close friend of mine she said there's an opportunity for she does storytelling and she wanted to create a class to train deaf people on storytelling how they can use sign language for storytelling and i thought it was beautiful so i asked her i wanted to be part of it i wanted to help create that event so we worked on the style of the event and yeah, like the team did like the incredible work. Like she basically ran everything. Like uh, there was a couple of five people on, on, on the team were kind of working on it. And yeah, we went in, we did a three day retreat uh, in Barcelona where we got uh, deaf people from like a group of uh, amazing deaf uh, individuals from Spain and a group of amazing deaf individuals from the Netherlands. And we sat them down. We got sign language interpreters from uh, Catalan sign to international sign and from <laughs> yeah. Dutch sign to international sign because that's the only way they can communicate communicate together. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it was, it was brilliant. Uh, it was really cool. So we were sitting down teaching them ways on how we, they can use their sign language to share their stories with the world. And it was incredible because it was very beautiful to see how they actually interact with the world and how they visualize things if they don't hear it. And it's, it's amazing. Like I, we started communicating on how they think I sound by just like they start like whenever I speak, they, they put down their hand on my throat and they can kind of visualize how I sound just by vibrations, which is really cool. Mm. And it was really interesting. So yeah, it was, it was brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah. So what's the thing that you've taken away from the Good Summit a lot of amazing speakers doing incredible things. But my takeaway was yesterday night, Liam Cunningham. When he said that phrase, it was really cool. He said, whenever we're talking about business, we can't be focusing internationally. And then when it comes to helping others, we can't be focusing nationally. So it was really cool. Like the whole aspect of right now, we're focused on globalization when it comes to business. Like we want an Irish startup 
to be to open everywhere in the world, but we don't want to help any anyone in the world before we help those within, which is really cool. Uh, and he said that it was very powerful. Like it was very powerful. Uh, the whole aspect of focusing how how we see things uh, in a different way. Yeah, that's the guy from Game of Thrones. Yeah, good. he's the guy, from, uh, Sir Davos Seaworth from Game of Thrones. What would you like to do with the Good Summit brand? I'd like to see it in a couple of different countries, local events in different countries, kind of seeing it scale out by amazing group of individuals, kind of showcasing how local communities can do good. And I, I would love to have it like very locally driven, like be in like a couple of different countries, having a great a group of amazing uh, people in those countries, kind of sh- sharing their knowledge within their local hubs on how to be part of societal change. Because the, the thing is, the issue with uh, talks and summits, most of the time they aren't localized. So let's say a tech summit, um, a tech summit would have um, a huge amount of people coming from abroad, but a startup or a tech startup that started in Kenya would be totally different than a startup that opened in the USA. And if it isn't localized, it will mean nothing for the guy here to share his knowledge there and the guy there to share his knowledge here. So the whole aspect of localizing content and making sure that the content that you're actually saying is relevant to your target audience, that's the most important thing. And that's one of the key things uh, that I wanted to focus on. So finding local amazing partners and amazing group of influencers, speakers in different regions who can actually uphold kind of small talks and small events, sharing their knowledge locally within the local community. That's the beauty. And so where can people find out about you and all your hundred projects that you've got going on? <laughs> Anywhere. I'm, I'm easy to find. So I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and I, that's, I, I use kind of social media quite heavily. But man, I stick to Facebook quite often. So yeah, like um, happy to help out, Nathan. If anybody has any question, I'm all, my door is always open. I would love to kind of reach out. Do you want to spell your name so people yeah. know what to type in? So A M R D A W double O D. And the goodsummit.com, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, cool. So final question then. Imagine all your friends and family on mm. a lovely beach. Mm. It's a lovely day looking out to sea. And you've hired one of those small planes mm. that has a message behind it. Mm-hmm. And these are your words, final words of wisdom. <laughs> what would you have on that message? Ooh, everyone can be part of societal change. That's the line that Jules probably hates at the moment because I, I say it like 24 hours a day. <laughs> and that's the line I, I say I said from day one at the summit. But like, I totally believe it, that everyone can be part of societal change. I love it. Amir Darwood, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks a million. Ooh. Thank you. Subscribe, rate, and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. It means a lot. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Callanan, and I'll see you on the next episode. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan.